bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me here at the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, owner of Circle Social Inc. Today, we have Bob Poznanovich on the show. I hope I said that right. (laughs) Um, Bob is the VP of Business Development for Hazleton. He's one of the nine in the senior leadership executive team over there, and we're super excited to have him on the show. We're going to be covering a lot about what makes Hazleton so successful, and they are extremely successful. Um, Obviously, we can't share official numbers, but, you know, we can tell you that they're doing very well where a lot of other centers are struggling these days. So we'll get into why that is. Now, but first, as always, the Recovery Executive Podcast is brought to you by Verify TX. They are the leading on-demand insurance verification platform for the recovery industry. I mean, when seconds can make the difference between admitting a qualified client or losing them to a change of heart, a competitor, or worse, Verify TX gives your team the tools they need to save a life. They're available 24-7, 365 from any device. Start by seeing them and seeing the 15-minute demo today at VerifyTX.com. And if you mention the Recovery Executive Podcast, it'll give you a special offer. And I just um, kind of want to give a shout out to John Wagner, who owns Verify TX. You know, he is an amazing guy and his team goes above and beyond to support clients in their needs for VOB. Um, you know, it's not just a platform. They're not just selling you something where you're going to take it and then use it and you'll never hear from them. You know, John will provide advice. His team will provide advice on how to do verification of efforts properly, what the good operational setup is what you should be expecting, and they're always building and innovating. So I appreciate him and what he does for our clients and other people in the space. Um, so Bob and I are getting get into a very meaningful conversation. We'll dive into the numbers a little bit, but we'll also dive into very effective strategies for um, dealing with the current environment and kind of long-term growth, which is obviously something I talk about all the time. And we'll also dive in a little bit to um, value-based care, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago with Jacob Levinson and how Hazleton has been using those to their advantage. And it's not just about the revenue that it brings in, but also some of the different metrics that Bob will share with you. So I was very excited to have him on. I'm glad he took the time. I'm very appreciative of that. And I'm sure that you will enjoy. So let's listen in. Hey, Bob, really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show today here. Uh, Can you tell us just a little bit about yourself and your work over at Hazleton? Sure. Thanks, Nick. I'm currently the Vice President of Business Development at Hazelden and a member of the 12-person executive leadership team here. Um, I, I joined Hazelden about nine years ago, um, officially as an employee. Um, prior to that, I was doing some consulting for Hazelden. And prior to that, I was a uh, referent when I owned a behavioral health company um, I sort of referred a lot of patients to Hazelden, and they also published a book I wrote. And then way before that, you know, 15 years before that, I was a patient. So 23 years ago, I walked in as a patient, and then I get to be here as a member of the leadership team. It's quite the journey. So you've had a lot of experience in behavioral health. Obviously, nine years with Hazelton is a long time. And like you mentioned, you owned um, Referent Company before that. Do you just want to talk a little bit about kind of what you've seen as changes in the field over that time? Yeah. Um, if I think about 
Well, the industry has changed. I think, you know, in the early days, if I look at in early days relative to my career and look at 15, 17 years ago when I started to get into this industry, I think it was much more uh, of a cottage industry that was run by people that had a personal experience with addiction. A lot of owners of facilities um, were started by individuals who you know, went through treatment themselves or had family members that got that you know, went through treatment. And then when parity hit and treatment was expanded to many more people because of uh, insurance coverage, I think that was one of the first shifts when we started to see um, some of these original owners of treatment centers selling their facilities for really great multiples flyers to for-profit companies who, you know, kind of looked at the data about, you know, only a small percentage of people with addiction were actually getting treated and looked at the potential with insurance coverage of how many people could, could be treated and jumped into this market. I think so. I think the proliferation of for-profit companies um, who thought that they would get a bigger share of the untreated population was one of the first indicators uh, you know that was in a significant change i think the corresponding uh, consequences of that were some of the challenges that have happened um, on the ethical side of treatment that were you know, caused as a result of the pressures and the promises made to the investments organizations um, you know, and the money that they paid for these facilities to perform. And you know, we found ourselves in a position that there are a lot more players now chasing not as many patients as people thought were available. I don't think you know, the investors understood the willingness component and some of the some of the components that are specific to this to addiction, you know, which is denial and a lack of willingness to get help is one of the challenges. Um, and so we saw a significant increase in aggressive behavior that sometimes was illegal and often was unethical at least um, that actually led to legislation that's you know, that's changing the way we have to um, that we we have to look at how we provide care and how we look at how we have our sales and marketing strategies around it. I don't think some of that negative publicity helped either when you know addicts looked for other excuses not to get help. I think that gave uh, consumers another reason to get stuck in making a decision. Now it became unclear who to look at. You know, I think the action that Google took to stop advertising, or at least stop advertising for a while, put significant pressures on lots of organizations. Um, I think the third component um, that had a big impact too was the opiate epidemic. Um, you know, it, it clearly cost thousands and thousands of lives, um, you know, which was horrible, but it also did open the door, I think, to visibility and to funding uh, and to a greater awareness about the problem. Um, you know, today we still hear a lot about opiates, but in reality, uh, alcohol is still king with regards to, you know, people we treat on a daily basis. So I think the opiate epidemic has helped raise 
the flag, raise, raise the issue and awareness for addiction in general, and is creating more resources to address all the addictions. I think those are the three big, those are the three big industry changes from my perspective. So it's interesting that you mentioned the, the potential size of people needing help with addiction, right? And this is something I talk about a lot with providers because, you know, you get the business plans and they'll say it's a $35 billion industry and there's 20 million people with addiction and only 11% to being served, you know, but when I run the numbers, when you look at the people that are actually seeking treatment, right, the number of people that need help to recover because, you know, a certain percentage or a high percentage of people recover on their own without support. Um, and then the small number of that group that actually has commercial insurance or the means to pay, you know, I get the number of only about 200,000 a year, you know. So when you look at these big numbers that people are talking about 2 million, you know, it's really not the case. And so we've seen this really strong proliferation of treatment centers across the country, um, proliferation of beds and support, but there's actually not that many people seeking treatment every year. And I think that has created um, an intense environment of competition, especially because everyone was trying to market nationally, right? People weren't staying local. They weren't focused on their local markets. They were trying to compete with each other across the U.S., um, which is interesting when you had a six bed center in LA, you know, running a national marketing campaign, uh, it's not so normal for a small business like that. Um, but would you agree, you know, or what do you think the numbers are in actuality in terms of the number of people actually seeking treatment in the U S in any given year? Yeah, I think, well, I think, you know, seeking treatment is, is one good question, you know, and, and getting treatment is another question. Um, I've seen numbers that, that suggest that those with the behavioral problem only even call for help a third, one third the rate that other people with other illnesses are even willing to look into a solution. So I think that either stigma or the disease itself, you know, so when you use the word seek treatment, I think that's one area that there are not, the numbers are, are low in comparison to other diseases that the percentage of people that are impacted that are even willing to seek resources. And then those that seek accept help at a lower level too. You know, even with the proliferation of insurance, even with the availability of more and more social services, the percentage of people who are accepting help has not increased. Right, right. That's interesting, isn't it? So I think it gets back to, you know, people always ask who's your biggest competitor and who should we be worried about from a competitive perspective? And I think you'd always have you know, the graduate school kind of say, well, look over your side flank and make sure that, you know, Best Buy doesn't become a competitor. Uh, you know, the biggest competitor to, to, you know, to me, and I think the biggest competitor to anybody we're going to face in this industry is not a particular vendor, you know, facility or treatment protocol. It's the people that just don't take action. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's right. You know, and even when we look at the back end and the data, you know, your self admits the people calling for themselves, um, like it's less than 15%, right? And by the time they've reached that point where they're so, they're actually ready to, to call, they have usually lost, you know, a lot, um, including insurance and the means to pay and family support by that time, you know? So a lot of it is really just families sending in loved ones, hopefully, hopefully earlier, you know, in the process before it becomes too acute, but not always the case. And I think something that other 
we also forget to factor in is a lot of treatment centers rely on readmissions, right? I mean, some 30% is pretty standard across the field. I've seen as high as 70 or 80%, you know, um, of a census being readmissions. So when you factor in those numbers, again, it even shrinks it further about the number of people that are actually going into treatment in a given year. Yeah. So you've actually been, or Hazelden, I should say, has been quite successful, you know, um, through these ups and downs. You know, there's been a lot of volatility, a lot of centers closing, um, particularly in certain markets. But Hazelden has continued to succeed. You know, what do you think sets Hazelden apart and accounts for that continued success? Yeah, good question. Yeah, in fact, you know, as we launch this podcast today, um, we're opening up a facility, another facility expanding today in, in Washington State in Bellevue. Um, you know, to continue to meet the growing need that we see across the country. Uh, we've got a client there. All right, we're going to have to do some competition in the marketing space, Bob. <laughs> Perfect. It'll be interesting to see uh, what you feel and hear and what's different that now that we're both in the market. Um, you know, I think it's a, it's a really good, great question what separates us. You know, I won't trivialize the fact that we've got, you know, that we've celebrated this week our 70th, you know, anniversary. Um, and with that, it comes a great reputation and brand. You know, so that makes it easier, um, I think, than if I was a complete unknown. Um, but, you know, we're still faced by all the challenges that everybody else is faced by. I think what's made us successful is we've continued to, you know, to uh, value, enhance our brand through the work that we do to support our mission, which is to be a force of healing hope for families and communities. And, and that we look at not just what we do from a treatment perspective, but what we do across our entire continuum from education to the, our graduate school, you know, to teaches the next, you know, counselors, the next generation of counselors. With no counselors, there's no care for anybody. The work, you know, there's not a lot of people lining up today in society to do advocacy work, and we continue to, you know, to fund our advocacy work and, and to do programs like our children's program, the famous children's program of Betty Ford, which is available to anybody. Um, the work our publishing team does to take our clinical innovations and to research them through our, through our research department and then make those available to other organizations so that, you know, we could do that and all the work that we're doing to train medical students and medical professionals around the country. I think all of that helps to add to the brand value. <clears throat> and, and of course we do really good treatment. So I think that you got to say that as we, as a recognized center of excellence, we're doing this for a long time. We've got, um, pillars within our organization that help us give back. Um, but we've always focused on creating really good care that has a, a lot of, we have a lot of focus on the patient experience and patient satisfaction. And we measure that and outcomes continually. We continue to look at clinical innovations that will support better outcomes. You know, like, you know, several years ago, we were the leading, we were the leading organization that you know, took the lead in providing medication-assisted therapy to, to address the opiate epidemic, despite the fact at that point in time it wasn't very popular by some of the traditional treatment providers. Yeah, the other thing was we do is that we work really hard at making Hazel Betty Ford a great place to work because we know that engaged employees will ultimately provide better care, and better care will result in better outcomes. Um, we... You know, our better outcomes allow us to build better relations with payers um, and employers. That we're kind of able to put our money where our mouth is. You know, when you talk about treatment centers that 
you know, live on 30 to 70% readmissions, you know, that's nothing I'd, I'd want to hang my hat on. I wouldn't put my money where my mouth is, and I don't think it would be a sustainable model. And we've got to continue to get better and, and you know, hopefully have no readmissions, even though it's chronic illness, but we got to look at ways that we re-engage people, you know, at the right level of the care at the right time at the right place. Uh, and that doesn't mean readmitting them every time to my residential program. Um, I think the other thing that we're doing is 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 to continue to improve care, is putting a lot of time into understanding uh, how to work with other providers to extend our continuum and our reach and our and to to increase that patient engagement or extend that patient engagement. So we're we're doing a lot of work to partner with other providers at a couple of different levels. We we've launched. Uh, a network we're calling the Patient Care Network, which has a couple different levels of involvement that um, has uh, us extending our continuum of care by working with known providers who are like-minded, who are going to have their own continuum of care, who are using evidence-based protocols, who can continue patients on the path that they started with us and keep them engaged, that have that same therapeutic alliance, and uh, are able to keep people engaged until they get the hope that's necessary to make the lifestyle changes that are needed to to uh, increase uh, outcomes. Um, from a sales and marketing perspective, we're not dependent on any what just one marketing uh, strategy. You know, we use the web, we use PR. Our marketing team has a very broad, multi-channel marketing strategy, um, not overly dependent on any one specific tactic. And I think that we have the best sales and marketing, sales and business development team in the industry, that we have a team that's very dedicated, very ethical, that, you know, is, is run and managed like any traditional sales team, that we don't confuse activity with achievement. Um, we're not compensating them on heads and beds so that any, by any means they have to get people in the door. Um, we want them to be to make a measurable difference in ways that build valuable relationships that have that, you know, they have benefits to both us and our reference. And I think that works well. And as I mentioned, I, I think our great relationship with our payers, not only because of our outcomes, but the fact that we're not viewing them as the evil empire um, has really helped us um, become a center of excellence in all of their eyes as well. I love that phrase, center of excellence. You know, I think that's really the key to it. sounds like everything that Hazelton Betty Ford is doing, right, is a center for excellence, whether it's your clinical or the way that you treat staff or the way that you engage with um, partners in the community and other treatment centers, you know, and it's something that I talk to treatment providers about all the time is how do you become known as that center for excellence? And, you know, we talked before, but, you know, when people call you, you have a very high conversion rate compared to the industry in terms of people that call and then end up coming in for treatment. And I would argue that I'm sure it's partly due to your skills and, you know, training those teams, but I would strongly argue that it's actually a result of that brand and that reputation that you have. And people already have a high level of trust um, before they call you. And so they're much more likely to end up wanting to admit into treatment versus when they call someone, you know, that they just found out about through an AdWords campaign. Would you agree with that? Well, yes and no. If, if you think about the psychological buying process, and this has been something that's been studied for a long time, a complex buying decision has four steps. Step number one is the identification of a need or a problem. Step two is to search for solutions to that problem. Step three is, is the search for a place. 
And step four is that purchase decision. You could have people calling at any one of those four steps. I think that the, the, the benefit we have is when it comes time to deciding on a place, to your point about brand, it becomes easier to say why Hazelwood, Betty Ford. But we still get calls you know, by people who don't know who we are. Um, and on some level, we are at a equal level to the next guy they found in, you know, on, on Google. Um, there are many people who do call us, you know, who've been through this, who've done their research, who want to come, uh, you know, who are at that stage four, which is they're ready to buy or ready to make that treatment decision. Um, but, you know, we, we, we get lots of phone calls from people who are trying to, to see if their, you know, their loved one has a problem, to see if treatment's the right thing, who are trying to figure out what to do, and they're not along that process yet that says, you know, when can I come in? You know, they're still looking about, they're still trying to discuss and find out if they or their loved one has a problem, if, you know, if I'm overreacting to the crisis. A lot of people want to call us who they just want us to tell them that, that they don't have a problem, they are overreacting. And there's others who recognize they have a problem, but they're trying to determine what they what they want to do and what's the solution. And 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 in often case, it's not treatment, as we define what we do. I mean, there's people who know they have a problem and will walk into an AA meeting as an as a solution. There's people now who are using office-based um, opiate and medication therapies as a solution. And there's people who will try other things, you know, therapy or just try quitting on their own. So. There's lots of ways if you want to quit using drugs and alcohol that you could have a solution that isn't what we would say is traditional treatment. So I think we, you know, our challenge is to meet people where they're at when they call and to spend the time with them to help them work through that process and to be legitimate and authentic and ethical in the process. You don't have to share exact numbers, but what percentage of people do you think um that you're following up with, you know, rather than, like you said, there's multiple stages in the decision-making process. Not everyone's calling in to decide and to come into treatment today. You know, how much is your team following up versus just, you know, taking a call and then working out the transportation or whatever for the admission? Yeah, it depends on the team and the call type. Um, what we've really focused on most recently is making sure that we're, so if somebody is calling and today is the day that they decided to call, we're really focused on making sure we get them to the right place, number one. If they're calling you know, for a disease or, or an insurance um, that we don't have, we want to make sure we get them right away to the right to the place that can help them while they got that moment of clarity. Um, and that kind of talks to our partner channel. Um, that reduces our, our need to have a caseload for people that we really can't help and delaying the engagement with them when they might be able to get help from somebody else. Uh, that leaves uh, more time and resources to help those families. Uh, and then we try to help those that are really clearly identified as wanting to come in, you know, to get them into the door quicker. We've looked at that whole concept of patient flow to improve the processes and their experience to get them in the door when they are ready, you know, to accept help and come to treatment um, so that we don't add barriers. And then that's opened up cycles you know, of, of resources for us to spend more time with the people that are you know, contemplating treatment or pre-contemplation who need more time to engage, to understand what addiction is, what treatment looks like, and to motivate them and their loved ones to take that next step. So 
it, it really depends on where the caller is to the type of, of support we provide them. Um, but I think it's really important that we meet the patient where they're at, not where our process would dictate. And so obviously understanding that's going to vary, but, you know, what do you see as timeframes if people are just kind of in the contemplation stage? You know, how long do you, do you see it taking sometimes for people to actually make the decision to come in eventually? Um, there is no real steadfast rule. And I was just looking at admissions this week that happened around the holidays. It looked like, you know, the Easter holiday was a, 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 a point where people weren't wanting to come to treatment that week. So, you know, we had some admissions that go back to the end of, of March. Um, but typically, it's a 30-day window, I would say, is one cases still have some life left left to them within a 30-day window from the first phone call. But we've got people that have called us, you know, every January for three years or four years in a row, you know, thinking about treatment, and they could probably call next January and haven't gotten there. But at some point in time, they might. And one of the values of our system is, you know, we could keep track of a person over time of who's called and Sometimes they don't even know that the family's called about them. Um, so without breaking anybody's confidentiality, we're able to have a long history of, of a person's previous treatment episodes or previous calls with us to kind of help us understand where they're at in their processes and where they've been stuck in the past to help us engage with them in ways that is really individualized, which is an important part of, of healthcare consumerism today is that people know that I'm talking to them about their problems and their needs and not just generalities. So one of the other things I like that you said is you talked about having a diversified, you know, marketing stream and different channels that you can move up and down based on need. Um, and you've mentioned before that you guys don't even do a lot of PPC, for example. So, you know, you have other channels that you're using. Um, do you want to give any kind of advice or recommendations? Because this is something that I think a lot of centers struggle with. They tend to be very single channel. Maybe they have two channels, right? Um, but just understanding how to look at numbers and understanding that you can allocate budget, you know, based on what's working in a given quarter, but maybe any kind of gen general advice about that? Yeah, I think my, my, you know, my primary advice is you put all your eggs in one basket. It's risky. I mean, as was an indication when Google stopped advertising and make everybody go through the legit script to be authentic, auth authorized. And I, I think that was one of the single causes from a lot of places going out of business. So one of anything is, is not a good strategy. I think the other strategy that I often hear people <clears throat> I think another mistake that often people make in their strategies is they have no idea what really works, what's not working. <laughs> right. Or the return on the investment of their spend. Yeah, yeah, we see that all the time. You know, so, for example, you know, if you have a thousand calls in a, in, a, in a period of time, you know, what was the lead source for those thousand calls? What is the conversion rate by lead source? And does the cost per lead, you know, pay for itself? I think if I talk to people and I've talked to peers and I, you know, when I was in my own business, I did some, when I owned um, our company and we also did some consulting for treatment centers, I would ask them, you know, what channels are paying off for you? What's, what's the profitability? What's the cost acquisition cost by vertical? And, and they wouldn't know that. Right. Right. So, you know, something is not working more of the same probably isn't going to work either. <laughs> Yeah, we see it constantly. Usually not a good strategy. Usually not a good strategy. Uh, Bob, I'll tell you, it hasn't changed. <laughs> it's the same thing when you go into treatment centers today. <laughs> it's like, you know, show me your numbers, you know, what's your CPAs, what's your cost per leads, and they have no idea, much less per channel and breakdowns and stuff like that. Um, so very interesting. And that's why I think it's that, and that's a big obligation. I mean, it's a real important step in the process and a requirement for the front-end teams, you know, to kind of capture in a legitimate way that helps provide, you know, an engagement with the caller, 
to, you know, to get to the question about how did you, how'd you hear about me? You know, we have to rely on the front end teams to capture that data and the phone technology to track some of this. Because um, if you don't know what's driving your business, you can't change it, fix it, or expand it. Yeah. And something else that I like to talk about, and you can comment on this, is I like to look at your blended CPAs or your blended cost per admits, right? Because sometimes what we'll see with centers is they'll say, well, you know, look, our Facebook CPAs are only $1,500. That's fantastic. Let's put all of our money into Facebook, right? But one, sometimes those campaigns don't scale. But two, I'm really more concerned about volume, right? As long as I have an acceptable CPA that's profitable for the center, I'd rather have more people coming in and pay more for that than just really focus on the lowest cost CPA and kind of limit my number of people coming in. Because from a volume standpoint, it builds my brand, it builds referrals, it builds an alumni network. There's all these additional advantages from the business standpoint to have more people coming through, even if I'm paying a little bit more for it. You know, would you agree with that? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, I think all of that, all that's true. You know, what, what I'm often challenged with in, you know, in a perfect world, what I would try to get, you know, try to get our organization to get to, and it's and sometimes the doubt challenges the data. And my own, my own company, we were really, really good at this. And that was really understanding a month or a period of time on calls. So it's, so take an example of conversion rate by channel. So a, a B2B channel, which is, you know, professional referrals making referrals through the sales team here you know, could convert at 60% conversion rate. A lead channel like uh, AdWords might convert at 2%. So in any given month, when you're looking at what happened, if you just look at call volume, it's misleading. So let's say I have two months, one month that there's a thousand phone calls, and all thousand phone calls came from a business development team. You know, their conversion rate is significantly higher than call volume that comes through other sources. So if we have a good month, it could be attributed to the caller types being different than the previous month or than, than the budgeted month. Likewise, it's true if you have a bad month, it could be because the calls came in on lower conversion from lower conversion types of marketing leads. So I think it's really important that when, when they take this blended view of a marketing strategy to develop their, their funnel with that same view to say, I need to drive a thousand phone calls to make my numbers. You know, 500 are gonna come from the web, 250 are gonna come from an alumni channel, I'm making all this up, you know, whatever is relevant to that person. You know, another 200 might come from traditional media and 200 might come from the sales team and the related conversion rate by those verticals you know, are whatever they are. And then I, so then I know my admissions in a weighted average of my admissions. And then, you know, kind of, so I kind of know the invert of what, how many calls I need to make those budget admissions. Um, and that helps me analyze what is going on in any one period of time. Yeah, exactly. You know, and so 
I spoke to this a little bit already, but we'll get this question. We'll say, okay, look, your business development referrals are converting at 50%, right? And the average cost for that refer that admission, you know, from a standpoint of salary is like maybe $500, maybe $1,000. So they'll be like, well, why don't we just hire a bunch more business development reps? You know, and my response to that is, well, no, you can't put all your eggs in one basket. And actually you should be supporting your business development team with these other marketing channels, you know, because they will reinforce each other when they're integrated appropriately. Um, but would you have a different response to that if someone comes to you and just says, hey, well, why don't I just do all BD? Yeah. Well, there is, I, mean, I think all of anything is a risk, number one. Uh, you're not going to get to every consumer through just a B2B marketplace. And, you know, I think I, think I saw this in one of your previous emails, Nick, or something that you had released. You know, the reality is there's a geographic, there is a reality of geographics, too. Um, and I don't remember exactly your metrics, but it was like a, it was like 30 miles for outpatient, maybe 100 miles or something like that for residential. Yeah, 130, roughly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So I thought that was really interesting because it's the same kind of metrics that I've looked at, too. You know, we have a 25 to 30 mile catchment area for outpatient, and we have like a two hour drive time for you know, residential markets. <clears throat> I think people believe that more reps make more sense. And I think that they'll find that there's a diminishing return when you go to markets further away from your market. And, and, and so the incremental cost value isn't always there. I mean, you could probably argue that five admissions in any year give you, you know, would pay for a sales rep. So you don't really need a lot. Um, but then there's different infrastructure to support them. There's opportunity costs that where those dollars could be spent. I think those are excellent points, right? I mean, we've seen on the, maybe you've even got some of this data too, but from what we've seen, you know, people that are trying to run business development in a state, for example, where they don't have a center in their backyard, you know, is usually, it's like one third. They'll bring in about one third the number of admissions. Yeah, and that's kind of what we have too. You know, we've got, I could probably do the math real quick in my head, um, but we would expect about 40% of the business from our outreach reps and markets that they don't have a facility compared to somebody in a facility. Well, all really good information here. I hope that people are paying attention <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> what I like, you know, is obviously, you know, I can say a lot of stuff from the marketing and I know what works for our clients, but you know, you guys are extremely successful, right? And so, you know, it's just knowing coming from a center that's successful that this stuff works, I think is helpful for everybody. Um, I want to go back really quick. This is more of a kind of maybe a historical question, and I don't know if you were there for that decision, but you guys did bring on MAT very early, and that was definitely against the grain at the time. Um, I'm just kind of curious how that decision came about, you know, given the kind of sentiment in the field. Yeah, I think it started with, um, well, I think if you look in general, it would be the courage to change if you want to use one of the principles. <laughs> um, we had a, a an executive team and a medical leader uh, and a board who couldn't ignore the data. And that was, there was a pretty predictable population that was doing poor in treatment. When they did poor in treatment and they left early, there was a high propensity for them to die. And I think that that is the simplest point that we couldn't stand by and do nothing when we knew there was an FDA drug that the, that the research showed would save lives. And you know, despite some of the social pressures, we've always been an organization that has used research and science to drive care. And the research and the science suggested that medications would make it easier and more comfortable for people to get detoxed. 
it would make it easier and more comfortable for people to stay in treatment and that it would help with the long-term tapers that would make them available for treatment and willing to participate and would be a important strategy to ultimately saving to save lives and and then to get people to be able to uh, eventually um, decide how they would define abstinence um, complete abstinence uh, but there's no chance to get there's no chance to get somebody sober if they're not alive. Yeah, exactly. I, I love that. I mean, I'm a data guy, and sometimes I feel like I'm banging my head against, against the wall in this space. You know, when I'm starting to talk about the data because not enough people have read it, unfortunately, um, or they're just not making data driven decisions or making decisions based on um, bias and, and opinion. You know, which kind of drives me nuts when we are dealing with saving people's lives, right? Yeah, Nick, and, I, and, and I'll, I'll say this. You know, anybody gets to stand for whatever they want. So I'll give them that, you know, but I remember in the early days and I was copied on you know, a whole bunch of email trails and emails that I probably shouldn't have been on as the head of business development from Hazel when it was all from the referring community, you know, talking, you know, so I'm okay with them taking whatever stance they wanted to and excluding us in those days from referring events and even conventions, you know, back in the day when they had meetings of votes only, you know, abstinent free or whatever they were talking about. Um, but I'd say those same organizations that took that stance based on personal preference and not data have to have that same stance when there's somebody who dies in their treatment center that they have to go tell the family that there were drugs that could have helped your son stay alive, but I don't believe in them. You know, so they got to carry that same, you know, thought process, you know, to the mother who's going to bury their kid. And that's a hard conversation when there's data that says I could have done something differently to save their life. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I mean, we've seen that backlash, you know, you probably see it, I see it, you know, whether you're looking at organizations like Shatterproof or we've got a local one here called the Opioid Lifeline. Um, a lot of parents have a very strong backlash when they find out that there were, you know, other options that could have been tried rather than sending their kid to the rehab for the 15th time, you know, with a similar approach. Yeah. Yeah. So thank God we did what we did. We've saved lives. We've got great outcomes. We're you know, continuing to do research. Um, you know, we were able to keep our the opiate patients engaged longer, which leads to better outcomes and, and reduced deaths, obviously. I don't know how I could go out to be a center of excellence and articulate the changes that you know we're trying to make. We want others to make in the laws and, and, and the advocacy that we're doing if we didn't support the science of addiction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you guys do a lot of research, which is something I really admire about Hazelton Betty Ford. Um, all right, so kind of switching gears back to the business piece again. So um, last time I saw you, you were in Long Beach and you did a great presentation on you know running profitability within centers. And you had three pillars um, that you really needed to focus on to make sure that, you know, in a simple fashion, your center was being profitable. Do you want to kind of walk through those a little bit? Yeah. So um, many, many, many years ago, when I was um, the vice president for a computer company, we, we had a, a, a management information tool that was called the triangle report. And it was three, obviously there would be three sides, the triangle. We used to talk about in those days, Again, in the manufacturing of consumer-based products, what was really important was, you know, volume or demand, um, cost of manufacturing, and expenses. And it was really kind of helpful in any given time when we got together as a leadership team to quickly see and help understand what was going on with the organization you know, compared to the plan, compared to the actual. And the triangle kind of represents in the, in the Greek world the delta, which represents, you know, kind of the word the differences. So um, I thought it, was, it would be helpful to bring that same model 
to the treatment industry and replaced the three pillars with uh, admissions, length of stay, and dollars per day to really help understand the dynamics that has to happen on the three sides of the triangle for an organization to be successful and for the leadership of the organization to know what part of the triangles or what part or parts of the triangle weren't working or were working. Um, so example is we can have a bad month. And it's always kind of the easy way to say is it's admissions problem, the sales or marketing admissions problem. But, yeah, but, but that may not always be the case. Um, the real currency is what we would call patient days. And that's the combination of number of admissions and the length of stay per patient. You know, times the dollars per day that you would average in your payer mix. So it's important for us as an organization to look at each side of that pillar and to have leadership in areas of leadership responsible for each side of the pillar. So sales and marketing is in charge of admissions. And their job is to get the calls to come in at the right number based upon you know, the, the, the marketing and sales plans to drive calls. So we read the right number in the right bucket that convert at the right number. Then the clinical team needs to provide care and engage patients and work on the engagement factors that want patients to stay in treatment for the length that that, is medical, that, that we would determine is medical necessity, working with them and in partnership with the payers. Um, and, and then we look at kind of their step-down rate engagement to us and other providers is a part of that side of the equation. And then dollars per day falls kind of on the finance and business operations side of the payer mix. Did we, you know, get the right deal? Are, are the patients coming in as we projected by payer? Are the pay, are the are the rates that we're getting paid um, what we had thought? Are the incentives that we're getting for paper performance happening? Uh, are there, is there any areas of revenue erosion that are happening because of, of errors in processes and systems that could be happening on the clinical side, the front end side, or the billing side? Um, so every month we look at each site to say, how does the triangle look? And what areas might need corporate attention? And then we look at it in the whole of, you know, how's admissions doing? How is length of stay going? And how are dollars per day flowing? That allows us to look at where the opportunity is. It could be a payer problem where we've got a payer who all of a sudden is getting really, really hard and not authorizing any days, which we've seen happen as people have changed, you know, payers or contracts or providers, I mean, or, or, or payer contracts. That may give, have given us an opportunity to talk to those payers and say, you know, what shifted. Um, you know, we could have patient engagement challenges for whatever reason. And, and, and so those become opportunities for us to understand where we need to uh, uh, celebrate our victories and, and, and address some of the challenges. Yeah, I think that's just fantastic. And it's something not enough providers are thinking about. You know, they're not drilling down into the specific areas of 
what's working or what's not working. You know, a lot of it tends to be marketing, right? They'll just look at marketing and they'll be like, well, where are our calls or where's our cost per call? But that's only really a third of the overall business model, right? You have to understand what your clinical team's doing, what your finance and billing team are doing and how that connects to length of stay, how that connects to your daily reimbursement rates. You know, all of that's essential for profitability. Um, yeah, and then we want each of those teams with, with strong metrics. You know, so things like patient engagement, patient satisfaction, staff engagement, staff satisfaction, you know, all fall on that side of, you know, of length of stay, right? It's all about patient and staff engagement, patient satisfaction. Yeah, so there's a bunch of metrics. There's a bunch of metrics that fall on that side that the leaders measure too. Yeah, I love that, that you break it down further, right? So then it's always about what right. leads up to that, you know. I mean, from the marketing standpoint, I always think, well, you know, really basic. If I look at clicks and then I can look at website views and then I can look at calls and then conversions to calls, right? There's always a step before that you can measure and optimize. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and going back in the beginning, you mentioned something about not focusing on activity for the BD reps, which I love. You know, a lot of people have their KPIs as like 20 face-to-face meetings a week, you know, or, or something. Um, but I just don't feel that that's a, a reliable metric for measuring um, success with the BD team. You know, do you want to comment on that really quick? Well, you know, I think in a, in a simplest form, there's three things a sales team does, has to do every month. They need to prospect for new business. They need to farm for referrals from existing business. And they've got to support their customers. And what you typically see is that very few sales organizations do all three. And that you'll find people who are really comfortable supporting their customers. You'll see people who are really good at maybe going into existing customers and trying to get referrals. And you often see people who are really uncomfortable in the prospecting side. And if you're not working all three sides of that strategy, you're destined for failure. And I think the activity versus achievement part is I could be really busy, but what am I really accomplishing in regards to those three goals? So, you know, you can run an organization two ways. You could say, give me, tell them exactly how to do it. Or you could say, I don't care what the how is, I care, I, I care what the what is, um, meaning what the results are. Uh, I think that we do it in both ways. We're, we're managing activity to hold the sales reps accountable, but on some level, we're giving them the benefit of being market makers themselves to say uh, how much, not how, um, but they know that they're there is expectations on activity admissions uh, and all three sides of the funnel. So we know they've got expectations on new prospects. They've got expectations on how much should come from their base. And then they've got expectations on what their best practices are to support their customers. So we really focus on making sure that all three activities are being done by every rep, although some of those activities may vary by rep. Does that make sense? But I, but example but, but example is, you know, like one of the things I changed when I came in here, um, which I could never understand, was the common outreach strategy, where I would throw events with my competitors, not just comp- comp- you know, collaborative types of partners, but direct competitors. That I would watch as marketers would come into a market. And they would bring three of the people in the exact same space offering the same, same level of care and have a dinner to a community. 
I get the collaborative effort, but no other industry would do that. And I think that was a challenge to stand up and say, I'm really good at what I do when you've got two other people in the room splitting the cost of the lunch and dinner, et cetera. Um, and I think often it was a comfort level to be able to do things like that with their peers. And there's times when co-marketing activities made sense, but I think that was a um, habit that wasn't necessarily a good practice. Another one is the amount of conferences and events that are out there in the industry that I see reps go to every single conference and event in the industry. And I wonder, you know, how do they expect to get new business when they're talking to people who don't can't make referrals? <laughs> I mean, the simplest formula in sales in that you got to call on people, but you got to call on people who could say yes. And when I'm calling on sources that don't have a referral business, I would say that's activity versus achievement. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, I agree. Yeah, it's something I talk about all the time, why they're marketing to other marketers all the time. Um, you keep using this word sales, right? And sometimes it's a little bit taboo in this space. So I just wanted to, you know, can you comment on that real quick? You know, calling a spade yeah, a spade. I'm, I'm, I have a very strong opinion on this. Um, I'm very proud of the fact that I'm a salesman. I view it as a profession. I view it as important as a profession as anything else. But I also believe that that there is an expectation and an obligation in sales. Um, sometimes sales has a bad connotation. I think it comes from two perspectives. One is in our industry, we hire people that have never been in sales and aren't salespeople. And I think that's the biggest cause of failure in this industry is that we hire people and put them in a sales role and we want to call it something else. And we hire people who don't want to be in sales and tell them to do sales. So, I tell people when I interview them, how's it going to feel at night when you tell your husband or your wife that you got to go on a sales call? And if that doesn't make your stomach feel good, then you know, you shouldn't work here because um, it is a job. Managing the territory, being a market maker, developing a book of business, running your business and knowing how to use sales, sales promotion, engagement tactics, and managing your territory professionally is nothing unethical. It is nothing to be ashamed of. It's something to be proud of. I expect my salespeople, as I would any sales professional in any industry, to know more about the products and the services in the industry than I do. And when I buy something I don't know, I want to find a sales professional who knows my business, my business problems, who could be a consultative rep and help me solve solutions to problems that I didn't even know I had, let alone answer the questions and the problems I already know I have. So to me, a salesperson is somebody who manages his territory professionally, who puts himself in a position to be incremental value to the people he's calling on, who is a professional who knows the industry and can provide solutions and provide that, that whole theory of incrementalism, where you are better off working with me and seeing me, you're better after that than you were before me. And that if I represent a product that I believe in and I'm providing a service that is better than my competition, I do you a disservice by not following a sales process. Because if I don't ask for your order or I don't do the work to, that adds up to you wanting to place your order with me, 
or trust your referral of me or send me your patient or whatever you translate that into, then I've done a disservice. So I think very much on every phone call that comes into Hazelden that we do a disservice if we don't help that caller get help because that's a sales process. It's nothing else. I need to understand how to engage people. I need to understand how to listen to them. I need to understand how I can help them. And if I can't help them, I need to get them to help. And if they do need help I, and I can help them, I, don't, I, can, I can help them without being unethical. I could be helpful them without promising them things I can't do or making deals that I shouldn't make or um, doing unethical front-end deals to get them in the door to surprise them financially. I could be transparent. I could be good at my job of communicating the benefits of what we do and how we do it and why I will help you. And I could help you buy. What I don't do is sell you something you don't need, like the bad connotation that comes to most people when they think of sales. So we're not selling people on things they don't need or they don't want. Our flip on that is we are helping people through the psychological buying process, not a sales process. But I take great pride in having represented great companies, knowing much more about my products and my industry than anybody I would call on, and that I would be able to add value on any call I've made with any professional to help them understand addiction and help them understand what we do. And I tell my entire sales team, and my expectation is that they should run their business and know their, their book of, 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 of their industry solutions and their products well enough that if a referent walked out one day and there was four competitors all in a room, he said, hey, hey guys, sorry, my calendar got screwed up. I can only meet with one person. I would expect them to look at the person from Hazel and Betty Ford and say, Bob, come on in. I want to talk to you. And that, to me, is professional sales, and there's nothing wrong with it because if we try to call it something else, then we ultimately aren't going to be successful. We've got the wrong people in jobs, and we don't support our mission, which is to help more people because if we don't sell them, the risk is somebody else's, and they're not going to do it in the ethical way that I discussed. That's interesting. You're right. I mean, you're kind of making the comment that there's this unconscious bias against sales. And because of that, you know, the people who are hiring aren't comfortable with it. Then we view it as, you know, a negative process rather than a transparent, honest process, you know, trying to get people the help that they need. That's... Yeah, it was it was interesting. When I, when I came on board, we brought the entire clinical team and I had sales training class. And they were opposed, like, you know, some people called the ethics line internally. <laughs> and when they all left, they, they, when they all left training, and I had people still talking about, we did it several years ago, that, that it was one of the best trainings they ever had, because it had nothing to do with sales. It was really about communication skills. It was really about understanding personalities. It was really understanding how to engage with people. It was really establishing how to have trust. You know, and people said, well, I could have substituted this class for motivational interviewing, and it's almost the same thing. And it's, a, it's all about listening and responding in ways that make sense to that individual person. You can call it what you want, but that's the sales process. And we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be afraid of it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, but I get it. I remember like when I first started, you know, having to sell things, I was uncomfortable with it too. I just, it was kind of like a bias I grew up with, but when I got over, thankfully. Yeah. I, I you know just give me, we were just, we were just interviewing somebody for a new contracting position that works in our payroll relations team who doesn't work for the sales team, but, I, but, but that we're close with the sales team. In the interview, I asked the person if they'd be comfortable going on a sales call and telling their husband that they were going on a sales call and preparing for a sales call. And her response was, absolutely not, I'm not a salesperson. 
you know, and, and, and I think that was a cultural disconnect. Yeah. Ah, that's a good story. It's a good example. I'll have to also remember to ask that when I hire my next salesperson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you mind? Yeah. Does your, if, if, I, if your business card said salesperson, would you have a problem with it? <laughs> right. Right. Um, short question here, but something I, I think is always important since you lead up the business development team, you know, what's your expectation in terms of a business development rep uh, length of time before that you think that they're good and they're bringing in, uh, you know, whatever their quota may be or an expected number yeah, of, um, I, 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 I expect a six months, six months. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty average. It, you know, it is a ramp from zero admissions to one to two to three to four to five, whatever it is kind of over that period of time. And, and what I measure, what I measure during that period of time is not admissions. It's really the activity levels. Because if a person does the right, has the right strategy and the right activity levels, you know, the business will come. And usually new reps fail from not knowing their products, not coming up with a sales or territory plan, and not making enough phone calls to make it work. So that's what I focus on is every one of my reps has to have a sales plan, which is basically a territory plan that says, you know, who am I going to call on? You know, where are they? Why and how? So kind of that who, what, when, where, why, and how questions. And they got to articulate to me, you know, who are they targeting? How are they going to target them? When? How? And, you know, and, and have them set their own metrics and then have them follow, you know, they can't meet their own goals. That's a challenge. Yeah. No, I think that's excellent. You know, I mean, that's what we tell people too, but you know, this industry is, is a little bit more immediate gratification, which is the wrong way to go. And so I think it's always good to hear from someone that's again, successful and, you know, knows what they're talking about um, to reiterate that fact that it does take a little bit of time to ramp up. Yeah. And some of the challenges sometimes, you know, and some of the challenges in this industry is, you know, is really good measurements. I mean, I think that's one of the challenges here because, you know, it's not like we get a purchase order and we get an invoice, you know, from a customer when you're selling a product. You know, there is a little bit of the kind of pharmace- pharmaceutical model here. You know, like the reps who manage a pharmaceutical don't get credit for every pill they sell. Like they don't have to touch every pill that they sell to get credit for it. So that's one of the challenges is, you know, is capturing all the data correctly because not everybody who calls in will say, I did hear from you by my psychiatrist. So that's one of the challenges um, that this industry has that's different and it's legitimate compared to other industries. And that is, you know, confidence in the data and the sales reports. And um, it's something people have to watch. An example will be, one of the great examples of that, and I I digress, Nick, here, if if I have you can point back, one of the great examples that I always hear treatment center talk about is interventionist. And salespeople taking credit for interventionist referrals. And I would laugh and I would say, does anybody know if the treatment center, your treatment center was the one that gave that interventionist the lead? So for example, I would hear that X, Y, and Z is our largest referent. And often they would be like, let's say, an interventionist. And I would say, how do you know they're actually the referent versus it's a call you already have that you gave to them? Because there's a difference. That's not a referent. That's an important component. It's an important partner, right? I mean, I don't get that patient in without that person's help, but is it really the referent? Is it a channel I can depend on? Or are they dependent on my marketing that's going to drive the patient to the, you know, to the interventionist? So when I see salespeople taking credit for a referral that came from an interventionist, 
I always dig into it to see, did that referral come with us or did it start with the interventionist? If it started with us, I don't give business development credit for a lead I gave to the interventionist to give back to me. <laughs> right. I don't give the interventionist credit for that either, other than thanking him for doing a good job, ethical job, and a good clinical job to get a patient to treatment in a way that we could help them. But they don't get, like, an admission credit. They don't get to hang their hat on, I'm a big referent. So that's an example of knowing the data, knowing the activity, and rewarding the right behaviors. Um, that I think is it's hard to get into the weeds sometimes when you look at this kind of admission. So, you know, if I was having a discussion with other sales leaders, I would say, how do you quote your people? How do you measure your people? And how do you know the data is good? And I think that that's a... a a little bit of a challenge in this space. Yeah, it is. And there's so many multiple touch points along the journey too. You know, you might see someone that, you know, talks to their psychiatrist who recommends you guys, but they end up just Google searching and calling rather than, you know, going through the psychiatrist's referral. Um, and you'll, ne- you'll, you'll never be able to solve that problem, you know, 100%, right? No. Nope. Just got to be comfortable yeah. with it. Uh, earlier, you mentioned performance-based pay, uh, and I'm assuming that was coming from the payers. And so I'm guessing that's connected to value-based care. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? We just had a whole episode on that. And so I'm curious about um, how Hazelton Betty Ford is handling value-based care. Well, I think the simplest way to say that is that you only put your money where your mouth is. If you say you're the best, you better produce the best. And if you are producing the best, you should get paid for it. And we're okay saying that we'll put our money where our mouth is. That I'll provide outcomes that are better than our competitors. And we'll look at measurements across a lot of different areas. Um, readmission rates, patient engagement, um, length of stay, emergency room and healthcare cost visits. So that was a good one that we talked about um, last week or two weeks ago. How do you measure emergency room visits? Are you getting that data back from the payer, or how do you? Yeah, know? you you have to find a payer that didn't have a managed care company in the middle. Okay, that makes sense. So you have a payer that's in charge of total health. You know, that's an important metric, you know, and, and, and it's something that we argue all the time, you know, that, that you can't look at just behavioral health spend as an indicator. You got to look at total health care spend and that, it, you know, that our value proposition is that we should be reducing overall health care spend. Yeah, absolutely. Now, it's not always necessarily able to get easy to get when you're working with a managed care company with a behavioral carve out to get that data. But um, where you are, you know, we're always willing to measure that. You know, we had, we've got several contracts with uh, organizations that measure us on um, emergency room visits um, the year before and the year after treatment. Sure. As well as days in the hospital. Have you, how hard was it to get those value-based contracts? Was that a long, difficult process? Was it just a process? How did that work out? Well, it's, 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 it's hard, hard and easy, meaning that some payers have the ability to do this and the willingness to do this. So that makes it easy. Um, others that we would like to use it may not have the, the processes or their own motivation to do this. You know, and an argument that I've been making for a long time with the payers is how do you know that you're not paying the right guys too little and the wrong guys too much? And if you don't know that, that's probably not a good position to be in either. <laughs> I would agree. What was their response? Did they have one? Well, they would say that we have data problems and we rely on you for the data. I, said, I don't have the data. I mean, I, I can't see if my patient didn't come back to me or went back to somewhere else. And I said, and it's not helpful for me to compare that data either because 
I would use the example, if a patient came back to me three times, because you know, if I can only see my data, um, I may not see that another patient only came to me once but went to five other providers, you know, each, you know, searching every time too, right? So if you just look at what somebody did to me, it doesn't paint the whole picture. You know, so you would argue if somebody comes back to Hazelwood two times, I'm penalized against that. But if he went to different providers three times, that doesn't, you know, that somehow doesn't count. Did I make myself clear? I mean, so unless they're looking at the total data and total cost per patient, they can't get a good picture. And I would argue that maybe two readmissions to my place wasn't a bad scenario if everybody else is going back to three or four different places. What I would argue is maybe our experience was really great. Maybe they really enjoyed what they learned. Maybe there's a continuation of what we learned. We're not going to start over. And we could, you know, the length of stay the second time would may not be as long. So when you're only looking at part of the data, you're only getting part of the answer. So I would challenge these organizations when they say, hey, you know, 20% of people come back to you. I would say, great. What's, what's the comparison of people who go back everywhere else? Right, right. You know, and what is, you know, when there's really how many, how many different providers do they go to? And is their overall cost higher as a result? Yeah, it's interesting how many tracking issues come up with this. Yeah, and a lot of these people, a lot of these people have challenges in data. But, but the one thing that people are starting to track, which I think is really important, because it matches up with the data that we've seen, and that is length of engagement. We know that length of engagement is a real important predictor to treatment outcomes, meaning it's not as important what level of, how long you're in a certain level of care as it is how, how long you're engaged in treatment in general. Hmm. So you're defining engagement as engagement in treatment. Would you consider it like alumni follow-ups or you're talking about actual? Well, like- well, like I mean, I start in residential, then I go to day treatment, then I go to IOP, then I go to continuing care. Okay. So that engagement that they're staying, they're moving from clinical care to self-care or reducing the intensity of clinical care is an important predictor. So I, I am seeing many more payers understanding that now. And they're, they're providing paper performance metrics on patient engagement. We've got metrics in place that measure us 30, 60, 90 days post-discharge if a patient's still in treatment somewhere. And that doesn't mean with us, which is why it's really important that I pick my partners correctly, getting back to what I talked about, you know, our patient care network. Because if I've gotten performance enhancers, I'm making promises on our outcomes, and in half of the cases, I'm relying on somebody else to provide that care, that person better have a continuum themselves. They better be like-minded. They better engage my patients in a way that you know, has that therapeutic alliance. Yeah, that's a big deal. Huh. So, okay, it's really interesting. Um, so from a kind of a benefit standpoint from Hazleton Betty Ford's end, are the value-based contracts actually more um, preferable? Well, Nick, if you know anything about me by now, you probably know I'm pretty competitive. Yeah. I'm competitive enough that I like to see us graded. Okay. It doesn't hurt me as long as we perform to have the payers hold me to that accountability because I get visibility and accountability. Mm. But it, but it further emphasizes our position. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so there, you know, so there's benefits to us. There's upside benefits to us, and there's upside benefits to the payers. If I could perform better, I should get paid better. I was just a little curious because some of the hospital providers that we've been talking to, um, 
you know, they've been doing value-based care for longer than behavioral health has for sure. And they, they were saying that there wasn't necessarily a financial upside to it, which surprised me because um, that was kind of part of the point, right? Is if you are providing better care, you should be reimbursed better. Well, if I was letting you know all the secrets, I would say there's other reasons besides reimbursement. Sure, sure, yeah. That's interesting, though. I, I'm glad you said that, though, because I hadn't been thinking about it. So, excellent. Um, well, great discussion here uh, all along. Um, kind of got to wrap up. I wish we didn't, but I got to jump on another call here in about 10 minutes. What final thoughts do you have? Anything else that you want to share that we haven't been able to cover? No, I just think that, well, well I think the final thoughts, I think you're going to continue to see a lot of shakeup in the industry. I think that um, it's going to be interesting to watch um, the for-profit in some of the poorly run places that might be somewhat on the unethical side, um, how, how the shake, how this all affects them moving forward. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see how new players come into this space um, from non-traditional sources to de- deliver care. Um, I think all in the end, the cream will rise to the top that those legitimate providers that provide good care um, that focus on you know, good patient outcomes and patient satisfaction will continue to exist and rise to the top. And those that are on the fringe will be harder and harder for them to continue to do business. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think those trends have been playing out consistently for the past at least year and a half here. Um, and I do see a lot of non-traditional players coming in. And I think that's shaking things up in a very good way. A lot of outside perspectives. We lack diversity in this field in terms of um, thoughts and ideas for a while. And so I'm glad to yeah, see. Yeah, very few people realize that Google or Alphabet, the parent, got into the treatment industry and tr- providing traditional treatment. Yeah, that's so interesting for a lot of reasons. <laughs> yeah, and Best Buy launched a whole division called Best Buy Health that's kind of under the radar. Oh, really? Oh, I'm going to have to look at that one now. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, it's going to be a changing world. And like everything else, nothing stays the same. But one thing that does stay the same is the quest for quality. And there'll always be a place for ethical quality providers who provide good outcomes. Absolutely. All right, Bob. So if someone wants to get in contact with you or Hazelden Betty Ford, what would be the best way to do that? Um, call Hazelden Betty Ford and ask for me. <laughs> Easy enough. Easy enough. All right. Six, well, six, uh, my, my phone number, my direct phone number is 651-213-4262. All right, I'm sure people can always reach out to you on LinkedIn and other places like that. Um, yeah, link, I mean, access my LinkedIn, and there's a bio on the Hazel website where you can probably link to me from there, too. Perfect. Well, I appreciate the time, Bob. It was great having you on. Um, very valuable lessons here all around. Uh, for all our listeners out there, this is the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, owner of Circle Social Inc. You can always find this podcast anywhere where podcasts are found for stream or download. I appreciate you joining us and look forward to connecting next time.